Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Deep Dive, the podcast that explores the ideas behind the news. What follows is a rebroadcast of a programme that originally went out on the New Statesman feed. Please, if you like it, go to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. Hello, my name is Ian Leslie and this is the New Statesman Deep Dive, the podcast that explores the ideas behind the news. In the aftermath of the awful attack in Westminster, the security services are still piecing together a fuller picture of what happened. At this stage, it seems clear it was a terrorist act carried out by an Islamic extremist But we don't know much else about it. We don't know how much cooperation, if any, he had with ISIS or any other terrorist organisation. It's one of a number of recent attacks that have been carried out by solo actors in the name of extreme ideologies. And in some ways, lone actor terrorism presents an even more challenging problem for politicians and for the security services than violence carried out by organised networks. We want to explore these challenges on the deep dive today with the aid of some expert guests who I'll introduce in a minute. But first, let's hear from my co-host, Stuart Wood. Hello, Stuart. Hello there. Stuart, you were in Westminster when the attack happened. Can you just give us uh, an idea of what it was like to be there? Well, the first few minutes were, for a lot of us, um, very confusing. We heard noises, police running around. uh, And for the first, I'd say, 15 to 20 minutes, a lot of us thought that there were multiple attacks going on, that the incident on the bridge, the crash of the car into the gates and the gunfire were possibly separate attacks. And I think a lot of the police thought that for a while too. And then we basically began a long five-hour sessions in in which we sat in front of TVs watching events a few yards away from where we were, and it gradually became clear it was one attacker. I guess a, a few of the emotions going around, firstly, that the, 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 the story was an attack on Parliament and obviously the symbolism of attacking the home of democracy was, was not just resident but presumably part of the intention. But of course the majority of the victims, apart from the policeman PC Keith Palmer, were, were pedestrians, were tourists on the bridge rather than anything to do with politics whatsoever. And the sheer randomness of it I found after a few hours more terrifying than anything else. Secondly, a point made by a lot of people, how lo-fi the attack is. It was a man armed with a car and some kitchen knives, and uh, rather than anything more sophisticated. Again, that's the, the horrificness of it, I think, comes partly from, from that and the ease with which it can be done. And then thirdly, more ref- sort of reflecting later on, I thought about how, how different the reaction is to this than what you might call a more standard criminal attack. Um, 
we spend a lot of time speculate, speculating about the motives, uh, about, about the connection between the individual and, and an infrastructure of, of terrorism. We don't do that with normal criminal, criminal attacks. And I wonder how much of that, how much in significance we imbue on the attack rather than it coming from the attacker themselves. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I did have a moment's thought the other day, which was, why has this become all about Parliament and about MPs um, when the people that were killed were 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 tourists? And, and I know it was an attack on on the estate, but um, it just seemed to be a, a slight sort of imbalance in the way it, it was reported. Um, but let's introduce our guests who actually know what they're talking about, um, Sasha Havlicek and Paul Gill. So Sasha Havlicek is the CEO of the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which advises governments on how to respond to the challenges of violent extremism. Paul Gill is a senior lecturer in security and crime science at University College London. He's written a book on lone actor terrorism based on his study of 111 such cases. So can I start with you, Sasha, and could I just ask you, what are the questions that, that the security services are, are asking at the moment? Because it seemed to be quite an unusual uh, incident, this one, in many ways. Yes, I think also the profile was quite common in a number of respects. So just to start with what was typical, uh, number one, uh, this man was a convert. There is a high proportion of converts within uh, the jihadi movement as a whole. Uh, he has a criminal background that, of course, is not uncommon within this uh, uh, group of, of individuals, certainly within uh, the lone actor data set, quite uh, uh, common. The, the really, uh, the, the big outlier in terms of his profile is, is his age. And while we see the age of far-right extremists and terrorists generally be quite high, uh, we see violence taking place above the age of 40, uh, recruitment happening even at that age, the trend has been uh, the lowering of the average age of recruitment within Islamist uh, uh, organizations. ISIS in particular has had a very, very, very low uh, threshold in terms of age for entry into terrorism and uh, in terms of lone actor terrorism. We've never seen anything of this sort in terms of a 52-year-old man uh, with that ideological bent uh, engaged. So that's uh, an anomaly. Um, and Paul, you've you've studied these cases um what's where do you draw the line between being a criminal and being a terrorist it's not always easy to tell in terms of a, a, a lone actor in, in particular right and you know in this guy you could put a different frame on him and say well he's he's had a history of violent crime this is not a huge surprise yeah so i think the kind of easy solution to that question is to just look at the kind of self-proclaimed motivations so on very many of these lone actor attacks they leave behind a manifesto, a recording, something that sort of directly draws them to an ideological cause. In this case, that doesn't sort of seem to be apparent, at least in the open source right now. Um, so the kind of the lines are a lot more blurred here. So we, we've done various studies of lone actor terrorists over the years and done parallel studies on school shooters and individuals that sort of turn up at their workplace and shoot the place up. And in terms of their sort of demographics, in terms of their background behaviors, in terms of where they found themselves in their life when they decided to act out violently, they all kind of look very, very similar. It's just that they've act, they're acting upon very, very different grievances. So on time after time, when you look at these guys that are called lone actor terrorists, often there's all these kind of personal grievances also being built into their um, into their kind of attack or modus operandi. And on the same 
hands when you look at sort of school shooters often they kind of imbue this kind of political or ideological sense but it's just not one that's gone as viral to the extent that extreme right or the jihadis have so i don't i think it's kind of an artificial um categories that we put on these people by motivation but in terms of their behaviors and pathways they look fairly similar and when it comes to jihadi um attacks uh, or is you know islamist extremist attacks do we th- do we think is it best to think of this as religious devotion that's taken a criminal turn or criminal activity that takes a religious turn or is there no is there no pattern between different cases so i mean we can't it's too early to say in this particular case with the westminster case but in in, in many uh, cases if you if you look at these individuals i mean they're not necessarily living kind of religiously devout lives you know uh, long drug taking alcohol engagement in crime i mean that's not really what you kind of match onto what you'd see as your picture of a devout Muslim, right? And often they do come from these sort of long criminal backgrounds and the sort of terrorism is the last phase of their criminal offending because often they don't, you know, survive the actual attack itself. So for some of these individuals, they'll take on board the religion because it absolves them of their former sins. Some of them will just use it as just a pure excuse. They're just violent criminals that just are catching on to a bigger motif as opposed to a motive uh, for why they're doing it. So it'll really differ from case to case. I, I do think there's, in the context of prison radicalization, we do see people converting to, to jihadism as opposed to converting to Islam and uh, coming into the violent tip of that movement. Um, What we do see is that there's a high degree of religious interest uh, among individuals within these groups and a low level of religious knowledge for the most part. I think that characterises not just the lone actor group, but uh, terrorists more broadly. Yeah, so uh, about a year ago, Sky News broke a story about um, they got their hands on 20,000 application files to join ISIS. So if you went over to Syria, you had to fill in your details and what did you want to be in the organization, like a suicide bomber, and you tick the right box. And one of the questions was um, was related to what score they got in a religious test. So they are sort Mm. of given some like basic questions at the recruitment phase. And one of the biggest predictors of who um, signed up to be a suicide bomber was the ones that failed their religious test. Is that right? That's Mm. true, yeah. So what, what kinds of institutions uh, breed this sort of or, or trigger this sort of move from being a criminal, perhaps with grievances, to, to taking up the cause of terrorism? Is it, I mean, we, we, we hear a lot about prisons, we hear a lot about online recruitment, I guess there are also some religious organisations perhaps, but where, where, should, where, where is the focus lie? Where should the focus lie? It depends really on where we're talking about. Uh, I know somebody raised the question of mosques earlier. Uh, In the United Kingdom, I think that's very much uh, not the case anymore, although we did see uh, some of the extremist uh, Islamist movements develop uh, in in mosques perhaps a decade ago. Online, of course, is becoming more and more the space in which radicalization is is taking place. Um, The uh, sophisticated uh, marketing uh, brand-typed approaches that ISIS has deployed Really, really clever, really successful. We've certainly seen a sort of diversification of recruitment through the online space, uh, disproportionate numbers of women joining the movement as a result as well. So online, of course, is one one of those bases. But I think this this case reminds us of how important those offline uh, environments really are, whether it's prisons or certain communities. Uh, we shouldn't forget that there are specific areas where uh, extremist Islamist organizations are still mobilizing on the ground. Those offline networks do matter. And I think it does 
raise the question of the extent to which Masood was uh, a full uh, lone actor. Uh, I do think that that is yet uh, to be fully established. Yeah, Paul, and what's your view on the role of online radicalisation in, in particular? I mean, that is talked about a lot. Do you think that's overrated or underrated as a, as a factor? I think radicalisation in general is overrated as a factor. I think, um, personally, I have no problem with anybody being radical. I mean, you can be a radical Liverpool fan. It's <laughs> it's a terrible life choice, but um, I have no problem. I confess prob- I'm one. <laughs> so I, I have no problem with it as long as you don't turn to violence, right? And, and the vast majority of people that do become radicalised don't step over the threshold and conduct violence. So when I'm thinking about what goes on in the online space, I'm not personally too concerned about the kind of ideological texts, the, the sort of things that justify violence in, in for the various ideologies. Really, it's the sort of operational details that you can find online that make perpetrating an attack easier to commit. So, for example, this particular attack uses a, it was a vehicular assault followed by a knife attack. There's been several kind of magazines and illustrations by ISIS, by Al-Qaeda um, previously, sort of trying to propel people to say, these are the types of things that anybody can do. Don't do your bombings. Don't do try and get your hands on firearms. You're going to get caught. It's going to throw up too many red flags. Go for these low-tech, low-key, low-sophisticated. There is actually a manual out there about how to turn a vehicle into a weapon of war. But I take issue a little bit with Paul's uh, point about uh, just looking at the, uh, the violent piece of this problem. Where we've seen really disproportionate numbers of young people in particular joining, let's say, ISIS, uh, but also other groups, we've seen a preponderance of uh, extremist organizations mobilizing on the ground for a long period of time. And I don't think you can disconnect uh, these factors so easily. But that, but that is more than radicalization, though. These are guys that have crossed over the line. So I think we're actually talking about the Correct. exact same issue. So there's right? there's push and there's pull factors. I think we largely underestimate the pull side of this uh, challenge, and that is the groups that are going out and actually doing the recruiting, uh, often on a very individualized basis getting these kids involved. Some of that is happening online and we see individuals essentially being groomed over periods of time. Uh, so from the broad ideational thrust of the propaganda into actually getting people pulled into the organization, the movement, and then of course into terrorist action, there's a lot of intensive interaction with young people. And we've seen, you know, in kids sitting online six hours a day talking to somebody, being very much cared for uh, by by these groups, by individuals within these groups. So there's there's definitely a piece of that. And, and it does speak to how we need to start responding to this. There are ways in which we can, certainly as civil society organisations, we're able to go uh, into some of these spaces with credible voices to reach out directly to kids uh, who are online and interested, engaging with some of these ideologies uh, and to start processes of uh, getting them uh, on another path. So I think 10 years ago, if we were talking about radicalisation and what helps people get over the line to do violence, we'd be talking about sort of interpersonal interactions and sort of the group kind of helping condition somebody towards that. And in those days, it was very much it was a offline versus online dichotomy, right? Because what you were doing online was largely passive. You're on extremist forums. But now, again, those lines are kind of a lot more blurred when you can be speaking to a recruiter via Skype, seeing his face. It's, you know, it's not so much of a kind of a major technological divide as it was. So you can still, uh, across countries, build these really deep personal interhuman relationships. 
So how much how much um, science, as it were, goes into Islamic State and other radical organisations putting up these remote recruitment systems? I mean, do they are they targeting people like Masood? Are they are they putting tools online precisely for people like him to be able to to sort of take up arms and do the things he did? Well, they they have a brand marketing team. They've been very successful um, and, in a sense, high tech, high strategy in deploying their communications. They've got a really nice, simple, clear media strategy, which consists in presenting a positive uh, image of the caliphate uh, in the first place. Uh, it, it is a set of uh, tactics around counter speech, and it is the weaponization of Western media which is also quite interesting. They know how to play us in terms of our response to these kinds of uh, attacks. I do think it's important to, uh, to remember that the objective of these attacks is political, coming back to your first point, um, and that the number of casualties isn't necessarily the focal point. The, the focus is about division. The narrative that draws these people in um, may be uh, heavily theologically imbued, but may not be. And actually what they're managing to, to present is an us and them uh, idea about our society, about the incompatibility of Islam and Muslims with the West. And in our reaction, it's incredibly important that we present a united front, uh, the political piece of this being absolutely central. And so I think there's, there's a lot more work that we need to do in terms of uh, being able to undermine the, what the, the countercultural piece of the ideology which is why it's so easy, whoever you are, with whatever gripe you have, to sort of hook yourself to this particular movement, because it's quite all-encompassing, it's quite, uh, in a way, welcoming, um, irrespective of your level of theological understanding and, and knowledge. So I think when we look in the sort of background histories of loads of these lone active terrorists, I mean, they differ in age, educational backgrounds and all that, but in terms of where they find themselves at the time where they pull in this ideology and decide to act, they're kind of uniformly finding multiple risk factors, multiple vulnerabilities going on in their lives, loss of jobs, breakdown of family relationships. Things are spiraling out of control. And it's in that time that that's, that's when they become exposed to the message that sort of resonates with them. Now, the difference between ISIS and many other groups before them is that the tools which ISIS can use today transmits that message a lot more. So you're more likely to sort of hit those people that have those vulnerabilities for it to sort of take hold. I don't necessarily know if their message is better or more on brand compared to Al-Qaeda. I think it's just there because they can transmit to far more people using social media in this, they're more likely to sort of catch those very few low base rate people that are displaying those vulnerabilities that it might take hold with. And as, as I understand it, ISIS have found it harder to recruit in Britain than they have in other countries around Europe. Is that true? And if so, what, why? Of late, okay. I would say. So I think we've seen a, a, a real dropping off of the numbers in terms of individuals migrating to ISIS-controlled territory. That's in part a function of being an island and being able to control our borders uh, probably a little bit easier than our European uh, neighbours. Uh, I do think, again, that we've we've had a big investment in the UK in dealing with the uh, networks and the organisations that have been mobilising uh, Islamist extremism for a decade. That kind of groundwork doesn't exist. That kind of civic infrastructure isn't uh, as well developed uh, on continental Europe uh, as it is here. 
And, and, and on top of that, I think, you know, it depends on what your kind of outcome variable is to try and sort of weigh whether they're not working as well in terms of their recruitment in the UK. I mean, in terms of actual attacks that have been conducted, obviously they're behind the curve and compared to France or Germany and Belgium. But there has been a, a major display of intent from multiple cases. Brustom Ziamani was stopped with a knife and an ISIS flag and a hammer in his back. There was another couple that were sort of plotting to hit Westfield Shopping Centre or the London or the Underground. There has been sort of over a dozen serious kind of ISIS-related plots. But on top of the sort of work that is done here in the UK with Prevent and Channel, which they don't have the equivalence of in mainland Europe, also sort of UK intelligence has just done a far better job at being able to kind of pick up on those soft pieces of intelligence which have led to early detection and disruption of multiple plots. And soft intel, I think, is absolutely the key to this, which is... Sorry, what is soft intel? And that's really being able to engage with the communities within which some of this can emerge. It means, of course, the the sort of above-the-board uh, intelligence work that's done by prevent officers, by local police, uh, by a number of community groups that are really vigilant uh, in terms of what's happening with young people today. So again, like back 12, 13 years ago, the vast majority of the caseload that MI5 would have been dealing with would have been sort of multiple plotters, multiple sites potentially in terms of the attacks. So there's lots of sort of communications going back and forth between those kind of hostile actors. So your hard intelligence would have been the sort of picking up on the comms uh, between these individuals. Now when it's your vast majority of your caseload is a loner or a pair of two, like a husband and wife team, there's less of those kind of communications going back and forth. So you're more reliant upon those softer pieces of intelligence. So like the Brustholmes Iamani case came from him telling his girlfriend, you know, I want to do a Lee Rigby. I want to kill a soldier and put a picture up on Instagram. And she called the police and, and the investigation was, was gone on, led to his disruption. So in about 60% of the cases that I've studied, these lone actors tell people specifically what they're going to do. It isn't like aspirational, like one day I'm going to do something. It's like on Tuesday, this is what I'm planning to do. And that like has a, led like to several. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in, interesting, actually, in our data set, the, the degree of leakage, that's the term used uh, for people who would have expressed their desire, their intention to do harm to somebody in some shape or form, um, is quite high. So 46% of the lone actors in our data set were in fact communicating their intention to somebody. And and a, a large proportion of those within the Islamist uh, piece of that data set uh, did communicate that to family and friends. And so there's there's more that can be done in that context, but a lot has already been done, I think, in a UK context on that front. Do we know what works in terms of tracking intelligence activities? I mean, you talked about soft intel, about getting to know communities, relying on communications, but is there, a, is there an accumulation of, of successful strategies in anticipating this kind of activity and stopping it? See, a part of the problem with trying to assess interventions in a counterterrorism space is that the base rate of behaviour is so low that it's just not possible to do sort of inferential social science type investigations that you might do on like sex offenders or other kind of higher base rate activities. I mean, we can get a sense of what has led to other people being captured and and detected, whether that would work in other domains across different contexts. I mean, it's just, we don't know. So that's kind of why MI5 and police and so on are just looking for as many tools at their disposal, because it's really going to differ from case to case where that kind of piece of signaling is going to come so it's more about trying to because it's about managing a caseload right so i mean cnn and others have reported that mi5 are 
kind of semi watching about 3,000 people. They can't watch everybody 24 hours a day because of the manpower involved. So what they're sort of faced with is this sort of really case of triaging every single hour, every single day. But where do we put our resources? So again, it's about trying to understand kind of the risk factors that may make somebody maybe a little bit closer towards doing the violence and maybe those protective factors which pull those people away. And that's really challenging. Given the uncertainty, this huge uncertainty, uh, particularly around lone actor terrorists, how should politicians and the media talk about this kind of terrorism? How, how should we prepare the public? How would you like to see the stories that we tell about terrorism change, if at all? In particular, Sasha, you, you talked about how the media reaction is part of the purpose of this, is to get us elicit mm. a certain kind of media reaction. Well, what lessons should we learn about the wrong kind of reaction or the reaction that plays into the hands of, of these groups, these people? I think in part it's a question of reporting on the really good stuff that does happen. We've seen incredible responses from civil society. We've seen uh, money being raised by Muslim groups for the victims of this attack. We've seen demonstrations on uh, in Westminster, uh, people holding hands, linking hands, Muslim women coming to the fore uh, to protest what happened. It's, it's really important that media takes up that type of messaging, of course, as well as reporting on what has happened. There's no way around that. Uh, but the sensationalization of the propaganda that these groups put out, I think, has been one of the challenges. So while the, you know, the social media companies are under a lot of pressure to make sure that they can get rid of this kind of terrorist content, actually, mainstream media often houses that content in the first place, puts it out and distributes in many ways inadvertently to the types of audiences, the sort of mainstreamed audiences that they want to be able to reach. So I think we just need to understand how we're operating in relation to that propaganda machine that's in place. And the other thing is that we need to be able to support efforts to counter that propaganda machine. We need a 24-7 machine to support the types of civil voices, the types of credible voices that are pushing back on this all the time. But we rarely hear them in the mainstream. So I think, um, you know, I think we need to sort of put into context what the sort of risk is here. I mean, it was obviously a very tragic event and, you know, innocent people lost their lives. But I mean, compared to some of the other things, you're at a far greater risk of sort of being knocked over or being in a car crash, or if you cycle your bike around London, you know, there's, there's far greater risks around here. So let's not overinflate the threat and sort of do the job of these guys in the first place. Um, I think that there's, a, a, you know, the reason why they've turned to lone actor attacks and the reason why they've turned to these low-key, low-tech attacks is because of the success of the intelligence services in stopping and disrupting attacks that are, on average, far more fatal, like your bombings and and trying to get access to firearms. Uh, ISIS and other groups before them that have promoted this lone wolf strategy, they're all quite open in saying that we're we're doing this because we're losing. Like, we have to move away from this kind of group-based model because the state is too good at intercepting us. So they're from a position of absolute weakness, but if we overinflate their threat. We're just doing their job for them when which really is, they're losing. Which is why they're looking to recruit on the margins, on on you know the peripheries of the networks that are under immense surveillance, and why I think we'll start to see more and more of these sorts of profiles that don't quite fit the bill. Um, but to go back to an earlier theme, is one is one rational and and positive response to to reframe this kind of activity as criminal activity rather than terrorist activity, or is that missing something important about it? 
So I think a lot of people put a lot into the ideological side of things. And it's not to downplay it, but let's just treat it like ordinary crime. It's what we're used to. It's what we sort of deal with. It's what we're very good at dealing with as a society. Kind of, we're much more resilient to that type of thing. So let's try and reframe the debate, particularly in cases like this one, where it's not exactly really clear what motivated this individual. And probably if we had the chance to sit down with him a week beforehand, his kind of motivations probably would be quite unclear in his head too and would change from a day-to-day basis. I think that's right for the lone actor uh, group, but I'm not sure that that's the right response to what we're seeing in terms of uh, wider trends in radicalization and, and recruitment, where the ideological piece does play a part, even if it's not in a thick conception of ideology. That countercultural piece is extremely mobilizing, and we need to be able to get ahead of the curve and do more in the upstream in order to prevent uh, people going down the pathway to, to radicalization, to, to, to violence. Yeah, I'm not really sure about this sort of dialogue approach to try and stop radicalization. I'm quite skeptical of it, because... People are falling for the message because it's doing something for them. It's resonating with them. And if you just sort of talk to them about, well, here's what the Quran actually says. It's quite boring and passive and it isn't sort of action oriented in the same way that ISIS is sort of filling that kind of void in their life, right? So we need sort of more of an action oriented approach that so, diverts people into other kind of... So we've done that. So we spent a decade, I think, in the United Kingdom... Uh, doing intervention work that essentially was pulling people back from the edge of violence. And that was done often by those people that shared, to some extent, extremist uh, views. And we were ticking that box and saying, brilliant, less violence. The fact was that actually that constituency supporting those views was growing. And the minute there was an opportunity, an excuse, a valid excuse, i.e. the establishment of the caliphate on the ground, we saw mobilization in numbers that we couldn't have imagined and everybody was scratching their heads and wondering why. We have to be aware of the fact that those movements do in fact uh, fuel the, the problem. And in themselves, they are fascistic ideologies that are divisive and posit the superiority of one group over another. In terms of the way in which we manage our societies, I think there's a broader requirement, a civic requirement to work for open society and to work for cohesive society. Okay, we could carry on for quite a long time because this is absolutely fascinating, uh, but we have to wrap up. So thank you very much, Sasha Havlicek and Paul Gill. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So we like to do a rant or rave uh, on every show of The Deep Dive. And this week, Stuart, I believe you have a rave. Is that right? I do. I have a slightly counterintuitive rave, which is in a week when we've seen this horrific attack on Parliament and on innocent uh, civilians and tourists on Westminster Bridge. Um, there have been a lot of calls for the police to be armed more, for there to be more armed policemen on the streets of London in particular. I actually want to do a rave about policing by consent. The policing by consent 
is the basic doctrine that the powers and methods of the police are based upon support from the public. And one of the key part, one of the key successes, I think, of policing by consent in our country is precisely the low guns culture that we have in our country. And you just have to compare it with the United States. So I think I tweeted this last week, but in last year, I think there were well over a thousand incidents in which the Metropolitan Police were issued with weapons to attend an incident. In not one case in 2016 did that result in the shooting of a civilian. Now, there are cases like Mark Duggan and others which are controversial when things go wrong, and no one's, no one's saying that there aren't mistakes made along the way. Um, but I think a crucial part of having a low gun culture in the population is having a strict limits on gun policy with our police. And you can look at the United States where this equilibrium is precisely the opposite, where you have an incredibly high number of incidents, not just of shootings by civilians, but by shootings by police of civilians as well. And I think in, a, in an age when all the pressure politically and from the, from, the, from the population is to move towards more armed police, I think we should be very, very careful about losing something which is incredibly precious and will be observed in the breach rather than in, in everyday life. So I think policing by consent and the support that gives to this low guns sort of equilibrium in our culture is really important. I think that's absolutely right. And uh, we're very good at taking things for granted, I think, as, as societies and as human beings. And that's just one of those things about the society we live in that we just absolutely take for granted. The, the police don't have guns, and, and yet we have you know reasonably good uh, uh, crime rates compared to other countries, very good in some cases. Right, so, you know, it, it's one of those things where you go to the States and you have any interaction with a policeman, uh, or, or just when the police, police are around, the mood is different, right? Just having the gun, you know, it changes every interaction, changes your relationship with with, uh, the, the, with the police. Um, and uh, I, as you say, I think this idea that, you, you know, when, when a violent incident happens, we should just sort of tool up the, the police is completely counterproductive because you can very easily get into this kind of vicious circle where everyone feels like they need to to do the same absolutely and the americans joke about british british police not, not having not having guns as though somehow you know any decent police force to do its job has to have these weapons but they're thinking about american culture rather than the british british culture which yeah. in, in many respects is is you know has all its flaws but in this respect i think it's something we have to be not just proud of but hang on to and i think the arming of the police is a crucial part of the sort of balance of all this okay i am not going to uh, sully that with a rant because i think it's uh, a great rave and we're going to leave it there for uh, for this show see you next time on the new statesman deep dive 